Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another amazing episode of bonus content for Beef with Bridget Todd. I'm one of Beef's senior producers, Sam Levine, and I'm super excited to dive into the clash between two titans in the professional wrestling world, Vince McMahon and Ted Turner, and the battle between their companies, the WWF and the WCW in the Monday Night Wars. Joining me today is Kazim Famuyide, the co-host of the Masked Man podcast for The Ringer. Kaz is a former managing editor for The Bleacher Report and former creative writer and producer for World Wrestling Entertainment. And we're so happy to have him with us here today. Thank you so much for being Thank on, Thank you Cass. so much, Sam. This is going to be fun. I appreciate you. I'm super excited to get into the really unique world of professional wrestling and sort of its heyday, in my opinion, in the Monday Night Wars. But before we really get into the Monday Night Wars, my question to you is, how long have you been watching professional wrestling? Did you start around the Monday Night Wars or before then? So my <laughs> my earliest memory in life, and I, I'm, it's funny, I laugh because I'm looking at the poster right now. Um, November 24th, 1988, which was the first ever Survivor Series. It's literally my earliest memory. People always say like, you can't remember stuff when you're like one or two years old. I was about one and a half at the time. I was in Far Rockaway, Queens with my dad sitting in his lap. And I remember, I'll never forget it, just watching these bright, loud colors of the Macho Man Randy Savage and the Hulk Hogan just flexing and screaming at me. And I still didn't really know what it was. But I, I, it was my first sort of introduction into the pro wrestling world. So I, I, I'd like to say I'm a lifelong fan, even though my conscious mind didn't really develop it until I was like a preteen. But yeah, I, I would say I would, I'm a lifer, man. So that's perfect, actually, that you remember the pre-Attitude Era, pre-Monday Night Wars you know, era of uh, the WWF. And for our listeners, could you describe the pre-Attitude Era, pre-Monday Night Wars just a little bit and what that type of Hulk Hogan, Macho Man era was like? I would say as a kid watching it, uh, the pre-Attitude Era WWF was more akin to uh, Saturday morning cartoons brought to life, right? Like I felt like every character was sort of, um, they were basically a character turned up to 11, right? You I mean, you got your clowns, you got your garbage men, you got your soldiers, you got your foreign evil guys, you got your all-American heroes. Everybody sort of played a character in, uh, in WWF in that time. And, um, I would say it was a lot less focused on the in-ring aspects and much more focused on character. And um, it wasn't necessarily the, the most interesting times, I'll tell you that. I feel like they were definitely more geared towards a, a different demographic, more towards, you know, kids and selling action figures and video games and all that type of stuff. But yeah, I, I would say the pre-Attitude Era WWF was much more of a family-friendly product, right? It was much more about saying your prayers, eating your vitamins, you know, uh, it was all about snapping into a Slim Jim. It was all about just geared a lot more towards uh, kids and children. And um, that's, that's, what, that's how I got hooked. I would say I got into becoming a real fan around the new generation era, right? Like I'm thinking, you know, Bret Hart was my first favorite wrestler because he gave away the cool pink sunglasses and he had the cool music and the cool jacket and the, the greasy 
oily hair coming down the aisle. Like he was just the coolest guy uh, out there, but he was very much a straight laced, you know, dude. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like as the role of a good guy sort of evolved, there was always these shades of gray, but not before the attitude era. It was a lot more you know, cut and dry on who a good guy was and who a bad guy was when it came to um, these matches. So the WCW was in existence for a number of years after Ted Turner bought Jim Crockett Promotions. What was your initial impression when Monday Nitro, led by Eric Bischoff, first aired opposite of uh, WWF Monday Night Raw? I didn't realize it at the time, but my first reaction was watching that first episode of Nitro in the Mall of America. Uh, when when Lex Luger came in with that floral sort of gangrel looking shirt that he had on, uh, when he was just the total package, when he was just um just did the Lex Express with Yokozuna maybe a year before, and he was still sort of on WWF at that time, and I remember just watching just the way it was set up. It was in the middle of a mall. And it was just a lot of people. And even though Monday Night Raw was still like a New York show and they were still, I think, in the Manhattan Center at that time, you could still kind of tell it still kind of gave a a stage show sort of taped feel where Nitro kind of felt like alive. Right. It felt like they were right in the middle of, you know, real life going on. So. When I first see Lex Luger come down, I'm like, oh, this must be some sort of mistake, right? <laughs> like, and, and, you know, I, I didn't have my wrestling mind that I do now, but I did feel like this isn't supposed to be happening, is it? You know, that was my first sort of inclination of, uh, you know, what I guess would evolve into the Monday Night Wars, you know? Um, WCW kind of came with something with, with along with Eric Bischoff and Turner Network Television that was a lot different than what WWF was doing, you know, even though they did have live shows and, and they, for the most part, ran out of the same places every Monday, it did feel a lot more controlled on WWF television, whereas WCW kind of felt like, wow, anything could happen here. They just got Lex Luger, who I was just rooting for to beat Yokozuna not even a few minutes ago. Now he's over here with Hulk Hogan and Sting and I just saw Hulk Hogan before and it just kind of felt like this evolution of professional wrestling. I didn't know, you know, I didn't really have like a ton of cable channels, so I didn't get to see a whole lot of Jim Crockett productions and, and, and a lot of NWA stuff, but it did give the feel that wrestling was bigger than just this one show I was watching. I was like, oh man, there's this whole world of professional wrestling out there that I'm not even privy to. So Nitro and in many ways was sort of my intro to that to being like oh wow like it's not just Vince McMahon and who's the WWF champion it is this entire you know sort of thing that's also happening on other channels so yeah it's wild that the, the Monday Night War sort of opened my eyes to that. What do you think was the most important factor in the early success of the Eric Bischoff led WCW? I would say the most important factor in the, in the Eric Bischoff led uh, WCW was the fact that they had Hulk Hogan, right? Like my last memory of Hulk Hogan before he popped up in WCW was Bret Hart getting salt thrown in his eye and Hulk Hogan just kind of coming out out of nowhere at the end of WrestleMania, I want to say nine and Caesar's Palace and just winning the championship out of nowhere. And then I didn't see much of him afterwards, right? And then we started seeing him on TNT and Thunder in Paradise. I don't know, I know I'm aging the hell out of myself, but it was the sitcom where Hulk Hogan played this, uh, I guess, jet skiing cop or something. I don't know what it was, but I, I just kind of knew Hulk Hogan was sort of 
I don't want to say bigger than wrestling, but he was a celebrity that also wrestled in my eyes, right? Like, this is the guy that was the action figure. He was the face of everything. He was doing movies, did the nanny. He was doing Thunder in Paradise, did Rocky, did all this other stuff. And um, when I seen him go to WCW, that's when I just kind of opened my eyes. Like I said earlier, there's another world in wrestling besides WWF. And, you know, Hulk Hogan was at that time in my eyes and in many people's eyes, the face of wrestling. He was the Michael Jordan. And uh, once Eric Bischoff brought them on it gave them immediate credibility it immediately made it seem like oh, okay this is a real other show that's going on and it's still it's still not really registering to me that this is a rivalry right like it's just seemed like oh it's like okay it's it's you know sometimes i'll watch the knicks on tnt or i watch it on msg right like it didn't register to me that this was like a free agent acquisition that hurt one company to help another one so just off the strength, because Hulk Hogan was one of the only wrestlers that I knew just off of hair and catchphrases that I'm going to watch this show. And that was a big thing for them uh, when I was growing up. And I think on top of that, you know, they had Sting also, right? Like Sting was one of the only guys that wasn't a WWF wrestler that everybody I knew knew of. And I don't know if it was because of the face paint or or whatever it was, but having Sting and Hulk Hogan uh, as your as your top guys at that point was, I think you couldn't really put a price on that if you're starting to have a company that's going to go and rival the WWF at that time. So I think Hulk Hogan coming over there started like a little bit of a domino effect of all the big stars of that time starting to to come over because I think as it sort of evolved, it started to make sense to me. I'm like, oh, okay, Macho Man Randy Savage isn't necessarily wrestling anymore. And now he just pops up here. I'm like, oh, okay. That's, so it's like a, a transition that they were going through. And to be honest, I was much more of a WCW guy growing up. You know what I mean? Because they had the cool video game. They had Hulk Hogan. They had a, a more alive show. It felt more alive. And I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, WWF was kind of going through a transition. So a lot of the times I'd be watching the show, I'd be seeing people I never really was into, interested in or seen before. And then I'd flip over to, you know, TNT and I'd say, oh, snap, Hulk Hogan's here. Oh, snap. Uh, Jimmy uh, Hart is here and, and all these people that I grew up watching. So I think initially Hulk Hogan was the, the tipping point to kind of getting that company taken seriously from its onset. I don't know if the Monday Night Wars started bitter just with um, the WCW acquiring, you know, older WWF talent that quite frankly wasn't being used as much anymore in the WWF, such as Randy Savage, who at that point was an on-air commentator. But one thing Eric Bischoff did that might have really um, deepened the sort of feud was he started giving away the endings, the results to matches on Monday Night Raw. Because Nitro was a live program and Monday Night Rawls were actually uh, taped earlier in the week, two weeks ago. What do you think of now? I mean, you can answer what you thought of before. I don't know how much, you know, I was a child when it was going on. I was watching it. Mm. I'm a little older than you. But what do you think of now of Eric Bischoff um, giving away the, the results to the matches and, and all the plot lines to the Monday Night Rawls on the same night that they were to air? I think at the time, it felt dirty. It felt like, damn, that's... That's foul, you know, and because I think the first time they did it, I didn't really believe them like they would they would say it. So I'd flip over to kind of like check it out. And then lo and behold, whatever Eric Bischoff just said would happen. And I'd be like, oh, well, damn, I guess they're right. I guess I don't need to watch this show. You know what I'm saying? But growing up now and, and even then, I still kind of felt 
they almost did WWF a favor at that point, right? Like, it's like, bro, we're on live, you know, we're on live every single week. And I think they inadvertently helped them sort of fast forward their game and be like, listen, if you want to play with us and, and, and be in the sandbox with this billionaire's money that we have on his channel, you better not be taping your shows. And I think, you know, the moment it obviously changed for everybody was when he gave away that um, Mick Foley, a.k.a. Mankind, was going to win the WWF championship on a tape show against The Rock. And I think every fan, like as they were do as and before even the Mick Foley moment happened, I think everybody would do that at least for a second. Like when they would say, oh, Shawn Michaels is going to beat Vader and blah, 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 blah. At least for a second, you flip over just if there was BSing or it really happened. Or if you were just a big Shawn Michaels fan and wanted to watch the match, go ahead and watch it. But I think inadvertently by doing that, I don't think they understood that. Like, yo, every time you you give away the results, we're at least going to flip the channel for a second, right? Like even acknowledging your competition is going to at least have a little bit of of intrigue to, to to watching it and see what happens. So I do think that Mick Foley moment happens because of all the prior weeks leading up to it. Once WWF, I don't know if they had the presence of mind or they were cunning enough to say, you know what? Yeah, we're going to tape the show, but screw it. Let's let's do this championship, you know, match on the tape show and see if we get that flip over. And, and, and play into it. I don't know if they if they're smart. They were smart enough to sort of have the foresight to do that. But like the legend t- goes now, me and three million other people flipped over to Monday Night Raw to watch Mick Foley win the WWF championship for the first time to beat The Rock. And that was, you know, the first time Monday Night Raw beat Nitro for, I think, the first time in two years or something like that. It felt dirty. But, you know, Eric Bischoff was was playing the win, man. And I, I, I respect it now. You know, like I, I think we're sort of in a uh, I don't want to say a renaissance, but like the second act of those Monday Night Wars uh, with AEW and WWE sort of uh, going against each other right now. I think competition just helps everybody. Right. Like, I think you're all in the same business. You're still all after the same fan and the same dollar. And I guess as a fan, I love it. Because, you know, competition breeds greatness. But I can imagine how somebody working at WWE or a wrestler or anything like that could feel type of way about it and want to take Bischoff's head off. It would be one thing if it was another wrestler doing this, right? This is a guy who basically, I don't want to say lucked in, but he he got the gig of a lifetime where a billionaire is like, here, executive produced this show, this channel, and um, the, the check's blank. Go for it. You know, so who wouldn't have done that if they're trying to beat their competition, knowing that they're starting with a 50 year head start in, into what they were doing, you know, so I can't get too tight at Bischoff, but at the end of the day, I think it all made for great wrestling and great TV. And what moments would we have gotten if Bischoff never did that and never forced Raw to go live or forced Nitro to try and do stuff to keep you on their channel every week, knowing that they were going head to head to Monday Night Raw. I think that's what made the the whole war as entertaining as it was. Yeah, that tactic of giving away the endings was a bit like the Sword of Damocles because (laughs) eventually they served as public relations for a uh, advertisement for the greatest, you know, baby uh, underdog baby face of the time, mankind beating the rock, yeah. right? Which even if you were a WCW fan, that would have been unthinkable, right? This was a middle, you know, a sort of a sort of overweight, you know, not muscular guy beating the rock, you know, in his prime. Um, I think for you know people listening to this episode right now, 
who don't know as much, this would have been sort of akin to Tim Allen on Home Improvement revealing that Ross and Rachel were getting together on Friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. yeah. It, you know, it's it like, would it, be it, like you're, you're giving major advertising. Of course. They were like, hey, you know Mick Foley. He used to be Cactus Jack here. You like that guy, right? Well, he's going to go win their world championship. I hope that puts butts in their seats. And everyone was like, well, I got to go see that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. I, you said you call it the sword of Damocles, and 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 I kind of understand it because, and I think it's a lesson that we've learned since then. I think with WWE and AEW is that acknowledging the competition is really never the best way to go about this sort of thing, right? It's because I would say when it came to this specific moment, WCW learned pretty quickly that wrestling fans like all wrestling. You know, I think they had a false sense of brand loyalty to WCW, NWO. And why wouldn't they, right? NWO was hot as fish grease. They were the most popular thing, not just in pro wrestling, but like in almost all of entertainment. And I think they learned a valuable lesson that wrestling fans, that pie chart isn't doesn't have that many different colors on it, right? Like most fans that watch WCW were also fans of WWF and vice versa. And whoever was putting on the best show, they were going to go watch it. It didn't necessarily help that, you know, it, it sort of put WCW into a, uh, they sort of had to scramble afterwards when stuff started to work. And obviously we we kind of know how it ended up, but you never want to be the person that's acknowledging your competition. I had a cup of coffee in WWE as a creative writer and I worked a lot of Monday Night Raws and it would be rare that they would ever acknowledge there was a massive NFL Monday night football game going on. And it's not like they were going to ever beat Monday night football in ratings or anything like that, but it's Monday night football. They get enough people watching as is like focus on yourself, focus on what you're doing. And of course it's, it's nothing to what WCW and WWF was, but I think it was a valuable lesson learned in consumer behavior. So WCW, which was owned by the King of Cable News and the Royal Duke of Atlanta, Ted Turner, had really deep pockets and they were able to draw over a lot of you know big name talent from the WWF. But maybe the most iconic moment in the history of Nitro was when uh, Eric Bischoff got Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, who were younger, edgier stars, the WWF, huge stars to come on Nitro. And when they came on, they weren't acknowledging that they were Nitro employees. They were actually acting as if they still worked for the WWF. At the time when you were watching it, did you understand what was happening? I did not know what was happening. Uh, th those first three weeks, it wasn't just like, here comes Razor Ramon and Diesel walking on TV. They were saying a lot of phrases that were very much the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, he was saying Chico and he had the toothpick and he was pretty much doing everything that Razor Ramon would do, except in street clothes. And if you watch that initial moment, like you see it, you see the crowd buzz. And you see Scott Hall sort of walk through the crowd. So it, it was a stroke of genius on WCW's part, right? Because as it's happening, I think the match stopped. I think everybody just sort of stopped what was going on. And it really looked like these guys that were getting their ass handed to them by WCW every week had had enough and they're invading WCW. And it wasn't just like, hey, I'm here to, you know, win championships and fight and take on Hulk Hogan and Sting. It was like, no, it said, yo, you guys won a war saying you guys as in WCW, you got it. So what WCW was genius in, in that moment was playing into the fact that not only is this a war, 
but we just took two of your main pieces on the chessboard and now they're in our, our toy chest, right? The one thing WWF was okay letting these big stars from WCW go is because I think in their minds, and I think to a lot of people's minds that they were past their prime, right? Like Roddy Piper, Hulk Hogan, Monster Man Randy Savage, Ted DiBiase, Virgil, people who have done multiple, multiple WrestleMania, SummerSlams, all that type of stuff. And WWF is very much moving into a new, younger sort of demographic. And they, they put a lot of effort into the Shawn Michaels and the Bret Hart's of the world. And, um, you know, Ahmed Johnson and The Rock and Nation of Domination and DX and all that type of stuff. They were pushing that. But at that time, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall weren't old. They weren't, you know, guys that were past their prime. They were very much in their prime. Kevin Nash was a multi-time world champion at that point and to my knowledge was in a main event storyline. Same thing with Razor Ramon slash Scott Hall. This was these were guys that were, you know, dependent on, you know, making the box office for WWF. So getting them at that time was, I mean, I'll say it like it was, it was pretty close to like uh, Kevin Durant signing to the Warriors, Shohei Atani going to the Los Angeles Dodgers, right? Like it, it was the first sort of instance of free agency that didn't feel like WWF was letting them go. For the first time, it looked like they lost people. And of course, initially, to WCW's credit at that point, they made it seem like they were still employees of WWF because I think at that time, as we were watching Nitro and Raw going back and forth week by week, you had WWF guys and you had WCW guys. I'm talking about fans here, like people who were just like, I love WWF and there's people who are like, I love WCW. So playing into the hostile takeover of WCW was brilliant right now i think wwf got hip to it and was like hey man you can't go on another channel and pretty much use the same sort of uh razor ramon diesel intellectual properties that we sort of created and owned here at wwf so i remember vividly like they had eric bischoff on the microphone it was like can you clearly state that you don't work for wwf and they were like yes you're right we don't but still we're gonna come here and take over and bring a new world order to professional wrestling and um Man, it was at that time, you know, it was still real to me, damn it. Like it really felt like it really felt like a, a hostile takeover was happening. And this anytime you could watch this show and not feel like this was supposed to happen, it's great television. Kaz, how important was Hulk Hogan's heel turn for the WCW? <laughs> Hulk Hogan's heel turn for WCW was the the walk-off home run that made them legitimate in my eyes. Up until that point, I still watched a lot of wrestling, not nearly as much as I watch it now, which is funny. So it's usually the reverse of people. People watch when they're younger and watch more older. I was kind of in and out younger, but you know, I blame that on not being able to afford as much cable and, and pay-per-views. And now you got, you know, streaming networks and all that stuff. But in any case, the Hulk Hogan heel turn was the stroke of genius that WCW needed to really show that they're not WWF. It is the one thing in pop culture that I think is referenced more than almost anything that happens in professional wrestling. Hulk Hogan, the ultimate say your prayers, eat your vitamins, all American good guy. The guy who pretty much, I don't want to say put WCW on the map, but definitely got them into a room with WWF as the best show in town. Turning him heel was something that, man, even to this day, 
I don't think it's been topped, right? And clearly, I'm not the biggest Hulk Hogan fan as I was when I was younger. But at that time, man, like there was real visceral reactions and hatred towards that, you know? Like, God, when's the last time you see people throwing garbage into a wrestling ring and throwing beers and just being legitimately fighting mad over a heel turn, you know, it's the greatest heel turn of all time. You know, there's, I don't think there's really anything that comes close to it because it wasn't something that was just WCW years in the making. It was his entire career in the making. And the story of the outsiders, Hall and Nash being these guys coming in to take over the company only made sense for Hulk Hogan to be that guy because he was the first guy that they dropped that check to to say, hey, come over here from WWL. It almost felt like Hulk Hogan was a sleeper cell this entire time. And when Hall and Nash came over, snapped their fingers, he's actually with us and we're about to take this whole thing over. And a lot of stables usually are one main event guy, a couple of other guys that sort of are lackeys, a manager, a woman, all these other things. This was the first time you saw a stable, well, in my eyes, where everybody in there was a main eventer. Everybody in there was a big deal. Scott Hall was a big deal. Kevin Nash was an even bigger deal. And then you got Hulk Hogan in the mix. It was like, it felt super powered. And for the right reasons, they let them, I guess right reasons at that time. I don't know if it worked out for them in the long run, but they completely buried their own company (laughs) to put over the fact that Hall, Nash, and Hogan, and Bischoff were running things. And anytime anything went down between NWO and WCW, whether it was a world title match, was it tag team matches, whether it was brawls backstage, whether it was beating people up in the parking lot, throwing Rey Mysterio like a lawn dart into, uh, you know, trailers. It was like a seven-month-long squash match, that first run of NWO, where they were just, you couldn't even get a scratch on them. And Hulk Hogan goes from being the most beloved, not even one of the most beloved dudes in wrestling, one of the most beloved celebrities in pop culture to legitimately being one of the most hated. But it only lasted for so long because Hulk Hogan was so good at being hated. He became cool. Like he became a cool bad guy. And it all just matches up with the mid 90s era of angst and grunge and punk and anti heroes and and all that type of stuff. And it took Hulk Hogan from being already immensely popular to even another level of popularity that I don't even think he saw coming. And I think a lot of wrestling fans didn't see coming to this day, still the most impactful heel turn in, in professional wrestling history. It was the decision for wrestling, right? Like it was, it was like when LeBron told Cleveland, I'm taking my towns to South Beach and went to Miami. Like that's what it was. But Hulk Hogan did it first. You know, this is a guy that was so beloved and was going to wait until the moment that everybody was watching to stab everybody that believed in them in the back. For LeBron, that was the city of Cleveland. For Hulk Hogan, that was wrestling fans everywhere. It still does not live up. Anytime, I feel like there's been moments that have come close. Like, I would say the shield breaking up with Seth Rollins is up there. You know what I mean? There's moments there. But man, Hulk Hogan and the timing of it, it, it couldn't be more perfect. It legitimately changed the entire business. Wrestling is famous for its factions. It's like West Side Story, but there's like, you know, 20 gangs. And I've always felt like the NWO was unique 
because it sort of introduced the anti-hero into professional wrestling, or at least the cool villain, as you said, uh, before Stone Cold Steve Austin came along. And I really feel that, you know, the WWF and Vince McMahon had to pivot fast, especially once the NWO started gaining steam. So my question for you is, where does Mr. McMahon rank in the list of all-time heels? And can there ever be another bad guy in professional wrestling like Mr. McMahon, like that character? Man, I've said this a lot on a lot of documentaries and shows and podcasts. I think the Vince McMahon character is one of the greatest characters in the history of television for many reasons. One, it was sort of accidental the way it happened. And I guess in many ways, a move of desperation. The Vince McMahon, the Mr. McMahon character was essentially created after the Montreal screw job, right? Like once Vince McMahon looked into the camera and said, I didn't screw Brett, Brett screwed Brett. There was no turning back from there. And little by little, you start to see that this guy that's been on commentary all this time or sort of lurking around the shadows about, you know, what was going on. And you'd hear little quips from Shawn Michaels saying, you know, you know, the, you're the man boss and all this type of stuff. But you didn't really know that this guy was really in charge. They never really fully acknowledged it until that moment. And we talk about the anti-heroes and, and, and what made it so good. I talked about the mid-90s being an era of anti-establishment, punk, counterculture, grunge, all that stuff. And there's nothing more anti-establishment and counterculture than wanting to beat up your boss, right? Wanting to beat up the guy that you work for, being anti-corporate, being anti-capitalist, all this type of stuff. And Visic Man fit that role to a T for, for many reasons. One... Vince's character of Mr. McMahon was a necessity more than it was a stroke of genius, right? Like there had to be a person, you know, after this Montreal screw job happens, after you just lose Bret Hart, just lost Bret Hart, you lost your world champion, you screwed him over in his home country, you get into a fist fight with the guy, get spit on, all this type of stuff. You made the smart choice. Now I don't know how smart it was. I don't know how much foresight he had in it. Anybody that knows Vince knows he's always down to do business. And If business was, if everybody who pays a a ticket to watch this show needs somebody to boo after this unfortunate thing that's happened, they could all boo me. And he took that on and it sort of evolved into what I believe is truly one of the greatest television characters in the history of pop culture. Uh, As a villain, he was undeniable. As a guy who can deliver lines, as somebody as vicious and evil as one possibly can, he did that. And on top of that, there was the hint of realism. He really was the boss. He really was firing people. He really was a guy that would take personal vendettas out on people and a bunch of other things that probably wouldn't fly in 2023, 2024. But a lot of that stuff was real. And lo and behold, you know, you get out of that primordial ooze of these evil overlord of a company, you get Stone Cold Steve Austin. You get the guy who sort of rises up out of that and becomes the person who fights the good fight who goes up against all odds every single time out. And I think I've heard Vince talk about this in in interviews and all that type of stuff. In Vince's mind, I think Vince was playing the role of Ted Turner. Like he was playing the role of the evil billionaire boss. And I think in Vince's mind, he's Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's the guy breaking all the rules, doing everything he can, flipping people off, drinking beers, doing whatever he can to go against the established status quo. As I've grown up to sort of see how 
the whole wrestling world sort of works or have a little bit more of an understanding to it, it to me seems that the only reason why Stone Cold Steve Austin could have worked is having a, a person to go up against him like Vince McMahon. Being somebody who knows what it's like to have somebody under your thumb and have the money to buy problems away and do all these sort of things that was sort of upending all of your hopes and dreams. Because Vince can't run into a, a corporate office and stomp a mud hole in Ted Turner. He could do it on TV and sort of act these things out. Man, Vince did some horrible things to people. You know what I mean? He did some terrible, terrible things to people on television. And there were nights like, you know, in WCW where it almost felt like, man, WWF is never going to come back. They're getting their ass handed to him every single week. And that's what Vince McMahon was doing for most of the entire roster. He was just, it never felt like he was ever going to get his comeuppance. And much like what happened with the Monday Night Roars, like Stone Cold would find he would get his little moments here and there and, and find his moments to sort of get victories over the man. And um, that's kind of how it ended up working out. You know, like it's 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 crazy that Vince turned into this character that is so unbelievably hated that a lot of people don't know where the character ends and he begins, you know? But I think that's sort of the magic of pro wrestling, right? Like, there's that part of Vince that is truly might be an evil person. <laughs> and there's that part of Vince who is this brilliant showman who has redefined entertainment in North America and, and in the world that had the presence of mind to know that an anti-hero like Stone Cold Steve Austin needs his Darth Vader. I think there are three iconic wrestlers in wrestling history that while they were wrestling, the mainstream non-wrestling public knew who they were. And it's Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, who may not have been the most famous amongst the wrestling watching community, but everyone outside of wrestling knew about him, especially because of Snap Into a Slim Jim and Stone Cold Steve Austin, which was created during the Attitude Era. How did it feel for you watching Stone Cold Steve Austin? Because for me, I think that's an incredibly important element to the success, not only of Stone Cold, the character, but the WWF during that time was the way he made the audience feel as he fought back against, you know, evil overlord corporate boss Vince McMahon. I said this earlier, Bret Hart was one of my first favorite wrestlers. He, everything he did uh, was something I wanted to be a part of, whether it was the sunglasses or the tights or the hair, or the jacket, championship, whatever. And the first time I really got into what Stone Cold Steve Austin was about was when he took his aim at Bret Hart. And my wrestling mind at that moment was very much a, there's a good guy and there's a bad guy and the bad guy usually gets his and the good guy usually prevails, especially if it's Bret Hart. And you got to remember the first time Bret and Stone Cold were, you know, about to see each other. We hadn't seen Bret for a while, right? Like he had just lost his Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12, taken a few months off. And again, I am a pre-teenager. I'm watching South Park and Beavis and Butthead and sneaking on, uh, you know, late night channels when my mom's asleep and then pressing last and going back to Nickelodeon <laughs> to make sure she doesn't catch me watching stuff I'm not supposed to watch. But the one thing that struck me about Stone Cold was the same thing that struck me about hip hop and struck me about, you know, certain levels of entertainment was that he had to gift the gab, man. Like he just knew how to just talk shit like people I've never heard of. And 
I remember me and my brother, we used to always just walk around each other. It's like, just shake the head, do the head shake and just say, you, you can't cut the mustard anymore. Brett, you're walking around with pink tights. What's all that about? And I don't know if you've seen this promo, but anybody listening to this, do yourself a favor. Even if you're not the biggest wrestling fan, go and watch this promo of SummerSlam 96, Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's just him just talking about Bret Hart in like an abandoned, like, parking lot that's on fire and just like glass breaking and this is like for folks who've like grew up in the prime of stone cold no this is the real prime of stone cold this is before his neck injury this is when he was still real hungry fresh out of ecw talking a whole lot of junk and just everything he said about bret hart was so scathing but also so funny that I couldn't help but like him, right? Like, this is somebody who cursed, who called him a sissy, who said, you know, I'm not, I don't dance, son. I'm not no sexy boy. You ran from Shawn Michaels, the boy toy. Like, just just clowning this man's whole career. And I'm like, damn, he kind of has some points. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's what made Stone Cold Steve Austin more than the matches, more than, you know, his aggression and the beer drinking. It was his ability to talk trash. Man, Stone Cold Steve Austin is a person, as much as Hulk Hogan meant to WCW and eventually the NWO, is almost more Stone Cold meant to the WWF. I felt like they were on life support, you know what I mean, for, for a while before they figured out that they don't need to go out and sign a big star. They don't need to have their next face of the company be a, a Hulk Hogan repackage or a squeaky clean sort of Bret Hart type of dude. We want to see this guy. We want to see the person who kicks ass, takes names, doesn't take crap from anybody because we could all sort of see ourselves in Stone Cold Steve Austin, right? Like I didn't have no job or anything like that. I didn't know what it felt like to work under the man or something like that, but he made me know what it felt like. He made me know what, what it meant to be a, 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 a rebel with the cause and sort of be, beat to your own drum and stuff like that. And on top of all that, man, like the dude just had an undeniable charisma. Even when he was doing the most terrible things, man, like he broke Brian Pillman's ankle and then broke into his house. And then Brian Pillman pulls a gun on him. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like worried for Stone Cold Steve. I'm like, no, don't hurt Stone Cold. Most instances in life, you'd say, yeah, that's probably what happens when you break into someone's house. You get a gun pulled on you. But me, I'm like, oh my God, I hope nothing happened to Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'm like, wait, I'm actually worried about the well-being of this horrible, horrible person. That's how much charisma this dude had, you know? Like Stone Cold Steve Austin, man undeniable lightning in the bottle for a time that needed somebody like him just as important as i mentioned the grunge era in rock but just as important as the gangster rap era in hip-hop stone cold steve austin even though we know he was playing the character brought a real sense of realism to professional wrestling. He wasn't trying to out-wrestle you. He wasn't trying to do small packages and, and you know, sunset flips and all that stuff. He's going to punch you. He's going to kick you. He's going to kick you some more. He's going to middle finger you. He's going to drink some beer. He's going to punch you, kick you again, and give you a stone-cold stunner, right? He brought a sense of realism to it. And he was somebody who 
I guess was became a voice of the audience. You know, I think a big part of being able to step into being an accepted part of the wrestling community is not being stupid. I think Stone Cold Steve Austin was somebody who, above all the other stuff I talked about, was someone who the most aware person on the show, right? Like he called out stuff where you were a good guy, whether you're a bad guy. Like he called it like he sees it. He didn't put in no filler. He didn't do none of that stuff. And I think people gravitated to him for that. I definitely gravitated to him for that. And um, man, I still can't believe some of the stuff he got away with on television. (laughs) Uh, But it was the stuff that sort of pushed the boundaries of TV. And even with the Vince stuff, like you still know this guy really is, uh, you know, the person who's probably taking the corporate calls the day after he gets sprayed with beer or stone cold stunted in the garden or anything like that. So that sense of realism really made the show entertaining week in and week out. Every weekend he turned in, it was like watching, uh, you know, Tom and Jerry. What's Vince McMahon and Stone Cold Steve Austin going to get into this week? Who's going to get the better of this person this week? You know, so the the evolution of all that from making fun of guys I love to taking on the man and, and going up against the corporation was was astounding to me. WCW dominated the WWF for two years straight. It had a two years rating uh, victory in succession. And my question is actually a three parter. When did you know the WCW was running out of steam? When did you know it was over for them? And do you think there was anything they could have done, if not to win the war, to have remained a viable company? I think the moment I knew... See, the wild thing for me is even as WCW was ending, it was still very abrupt, right? Like, even though it wasn't as hot as it was in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, I still didn't think watching those last couple of episodes of Nitro that it was going to be over in less than a month. You know, it all it all happened very fast. Like I, I, you had heard stories about the company being for sale. And it was my first time really getting into like TV deals and cable deals and learning about mergers and AOL and Time Warner and all that type of stuff. It was the first time I, I knew anything about that. So I, it still didn't even cross my mind that WCW Nitro just wouldn't be on TV anymore because it just happened so fast. But I would say the moment I know it really lost momentum was when they got Mike Tyson. Like when when Mike Tyson, who was the most controversial sports star in the world at that point, um, shows up on Raw with a DX shirt that gets ripped off by Shawn Michaels. He's telling people to suck it. And I'm just like... I don't think they got an answer for this. <laughs> you know, like Stone Cold Steve Austin, we all knew was having his crowning moment. Like at that time, I think it was WrestleMania 13. WrestleMania is at that point was still a little bit more believable. It was still a little bit more formulaic. It always felt like win the Royal Rumble, get into WrestleMania, win the championship at WrestleMania, right? So I think we were all sort of getting ready to, to coronate Steve Austin as like the next guy. It, it seemed very obvious that this dude needs to be world champion. And when they got Mike Tyson involved, it just felt like, oh, wow, like they are really really going for it and they were just doing stuff on tv every week whether it was degeneration x whether it was stone cold steve austin whether it was mike tyson it felt like they had real momentum that wcw i don't think truly caught yet they were still popping like don't get me wrong but i think when i knew it was about to be a downward turn uh in two moments one was the end of goldberg streak i thought the way that was handled uh, I didn't order on pay-per-view. I watched it 
unfold online through internet forums and I'm reading it, right? So I'm like, he got electrocuted with what? Like what happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? And mind you, Goldberg was in many ways their answer for Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, but he was a, a, a super powered, supercharged sort of version of him. And he, he worked. There's a lot of people that don't like Goldberg. I was a Goldberg fan, man. Like, if you mean to tell me you were a teenager and didn't like dudes standing in fireworks, spearing the boots out of people, slamming folks and getting out of there before dinner time, I don't know what to tell you. That was must-see TV for me every week. Kaz, we're both fans of professional wrestling, and I'm sure that at times we have to explain to our friends what is interesting and what is cool and singular about professional wrestling which is scripted entertainment yes. right there's no question around that it. it's scripted entertainment but you know during the attitude era professional wrestling was hitting ratings numbers of like five and a half million viewers per episode right that's 10 million people around the country watching on cable no less which now a show on nbc you know like national could can't hit that now and i guess my question is what makes professional wrestling unique in the entertainment you know landscape Man, what makes professional wrestling unique in the professional wrestling landscape is a number of things. I always tell people the reason why the best professional wrestlers are always extremely successful in avenues of entertainment is because in many ways, professional wrestling is like movie star boot camp. It's like you're doing all your own stunts. There's one take. It's in the middle of a crowd, usually in the tens of thousands. You're cutting promos. You're talking about your opponent. You're pretty much your own promoter and you have to sort of be a five tool player to be really good at this. And to the naked eye, to the untrained eye, it almost seems like anybody could do it, right? Like, oh, it's choreographed. All you got to do is tell me what to do and da 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 But I think you know and I know there's way more that goes into that, especially if you can add to the fact that not only are you a compelling character, but you can pull off, you know, entertaining, engaging, you know, scripted matches um you know every single week or every single pay-per-view premium live event whatever you call it i would say to somebody who doesn't necessarily watch professional wrestling every single week the reason why it is so unique of a form of entertainment is because that one there's no reruns two it is a form of entertainment that's been around for literal centuries right and on top of that it's evolved and sort of set the precedent for other forms of entertainment, whereas things that are, I would say, a lot more easily digestible, right? You like paying for fights? You like paying to watch boxing and UFC? Well, Vince McMahon and the WWE really did that first. They sort of spearheaded that. Oh, you like having a streaming network where you could just watch whatever match you want and have all types of content there for you at the picking? Well, WWE kind of did that first. You don't just want to watch two fighters go at it. You want to have an actual emotional connection to something and a reason why people want to watch these two people tear each other's heads off where that's basically what professional wrestling is especially North American wrestling, it's a morality play. It is a morality play based on sports that you can appreciate if you have any sort of appreciation for athleticism and combat sports. And as a storyteller, the really good ones, you have an appreciation for it as people who can perform live in front of a crowd on live television every single week. And it is not easy. I think the more you see other people from other walks of entertainment try it, it's been the same sort of response for everyone. They come out with a brand new respect for it. 
they come out with a brand new appreciation for it. And I think the way specifically WWE does it, it is a telltale way to really prove if you got what it takes to be a famous person, an action star, a movie star, you know what I mean? Like, it's no surprise that The Rock has been wildly successful in his career. There's no surprise that John Cena has been wildly successful. Dave Bautista, wildly successful. A lot of these people who have jumped in and out, and now we're jumping backwards now. Now you're getting people who are already famous in the pop culture world, the Bad Bunnies, the Logan Pauls, the, all these people getting into the ring and, and getting that sort of rub or respect from the mainstream world that I don't think was necessarily as prevalent as it was earlier in my wrestling watching fandom, right? Like I said, uh, Mike Tyson being that part of WrestleMania 14 was a big part of that. How crazier would it have been if Mike Tyson was in there taking bumps? Honestly, like Mike Tyson's peak was pretty much over at that point. Like in, in a weird alternate universe, Mike Tyson probably could have took his first bump after biting off Vander Holyfield's ear and become the biggest wrestling star in, in history. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I'll say if you're somebody who enjoys athleticism, if you're somebody who enjoys storytelling, if you're somebody who can always see good versus evil, right versus wrong, how I feel versus how you feel, pro wrestling has always been a great way to see that played out some way. At the end of the day, no matter what storyline's being told, no matter what thing is trying to be expressed through wrestling, eventually you got to get in the ring. And eventually you got to settle it with fists and feet. And you don't necessarily get to do that <laughs> in a lot of other forms of entertainment. So I love it, man. There's nothing, there's nothing like it. It's, it's my favorite form of entertainment. I'm a lifer. I don't think I'll ever stop watching it. And um, it's better than your favorite thing, which is I always tell people. Pro wrestling is better than whatever your favorite thing is. <laughs> Cass, thank you so much for joining us on Beef with Bridget Todd and talking about the Monday Night Wars and the truly singular world that is professional wrestling. And if you want to hear the Masked Man show, you can subscribe to the Ringer Wrestling Show, which is the wrestling feed. They have more. They have cheap heat. And what is... Wednesday, Wednesday Worldwide. Wide. I was about to say Macklemania, but it was Wednesday Worldwide. Yes. <laughs> and really, it, it was a pleasure having you on, and thank you so much. I really do appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, thank you for tuning in, man. I hope you guys enjoy this. Next Chapter Podcasts.